Chapter 17 Home on the Cloud In 2011, I was back in the States, working for the same nominal employer, Dell, but now attached to my old agency, the CIA. One mild spring day, I came home from my first day at the new job and was amused to notice the house I'd moved into had a mailbox. It was nothing fancy, just one of those subdivided rectangles common to townhouse communities, but still, it made me smile. I hadn't had a mailbox in years and hadn't ever checked this one. I might not even have registered its existence had it not been overflowing, stuffed to bursting with heaps of junk mail addressed to Mr. Edward J. Snowden or current resident. The envelopes contained coupons and ad circulars for household products. Someone knew that I'd just moved in. A memory surfaced from my childhood, a memory of checking the mail and finding a letter to my sister. Although I wanted to open it, my mother wouldn't let me. I remember asking why. Because, she said, it's not addressed to you. She explained that opening mail intended for someone else, even if it was just a birthday card or a chain letter, wasn't a very nice thing to do. In fact, it was a crime. I wanted to know what kind of crime. A big one, buddy, my mother said. A federal crime. I stood in the parking lot, tore the envelopes in half, and carried them to the trash. I had a new iPhone in the pocket of my new Ralph Lauren suit. I had new Burberry glasses, a new haircut, keys to this new townhouse in Columbia, Maryland, the largest place I'd ever lived in, and the first place that really felt like mine. I was rich, or at least my friends thought so. I barely recognized myself. I'd decided it was best to live in denial and just make some money, make life better for the people I loved. After all, wasn't that what everybody else did? But it was easier said than done. The denial, I mean. The money, that came easy. So easy that I felt guilty. Counting Geneva and not counting periodic trips home, I'd been away for nearly four years. The America I returned to felt like a changed country. I won't go as far as to say that I felt like a foreigner, but I did find myself mired in way too many conversations I didn't understand. Every other word was the name of some TV show or movie I didn't know, or a celebrity scandal I didn't care about, and I couldn't respond. I had nothing to respond with. Contradictory thoughts rained down like Tetris blocks, and I struggled to sort them out, to make them disappear. I thought, pity these poor, sweet, innocent people. They're victims, watched by the government, watched by the very screens they worship. Then I thought, shut up. Stop being so dramatic. They're happy. They don't care, and you don't have to either. Grow up, do your work, pay your bills. That's life. A normal life was what Lindsay and I were hoping for. We were ready for the next stage and had decided to settle down. We had a nice backyard with a cherry tree that reminded me of a sweeter Japan. A spot on the Tama River, where Lindsay and I had laughed and rolled around atop the fragrant carpet of Tokyo blossoms as we watched the Sakura fall. Lindsay was getting certified as a yoga instructor. I, meanwhile, was getting used to my new position. In sales. One of the external vendors I'd worked with on Epic Shelter ended up working for Dell and convinced me that I was wasting my time with getting paid by the hour. I should get into the sales side of Dell's business, he said, where I could earn a fortune for more ideas like Epic Shelter. I'd be making an astronomical leap up the corporate ladder, and he'd be getting a substantial referral bonus. I was ready to be convinced, especially since it meant distracting myself from my growing sense of unease, which could only get me into trouble. The official job title was Solutions Consultant. It meant, in essence, that I had to solve the problems created by my new partner, whom I'm going to call Cliff, the account manager. Cliff was supposed to be the face, and I was to be the brain. When we sat down with the CIA's technical royalty and purchasing agents, his job was to sell Dell's equipment and expertise by any means necessary. This meant reaching deep into the seat of his pants for unlimited slick promises as to how we'd do things for the agency, things that were definitely, definitely not possible for our competitors. And in reality, 
not possible for us either. My job was to lead a team of experts in building something that reduced the degree to which Cliff had lied by just enough that when the person who signed the check pressed the power button, we wouldn't all be sent to jail. No pressure. Our main project was to help the CIA catch up with the bleeding edge, or just with the technical standards of the NSA, by building it the buzziest of new technologies, a private cloud. The aim was to unite the agency's processing and storage while distributing the ways by which data could be accessed. In plain American, we wanted to make it so that someone in a tent in Afghanistan could do exactly the same work in exactly the same way as someone at CIA headquarters. The agency, and indeed the whole IC's technical leadership, was constantly complaining about silos. The problem of having a billion buckets of data spread all over the world that they couldn't keep track of or access. So I was leading a team of some of the smartest people at Dell to come up with a way that anyone, anywhere, could reach anything. During the proof-of-concept stage, the working name of our cloud became Frankie. Don't blame me. On the tech side, we just called it the private cloud. It was Cliff who named it, in the middle of a demo with the CIA, saying they were going to love our little Frankenstein because it's a real monster. The more promises Cliff made, the busier I became, leaving Lindsay and me only the weekends to catch up with our parents and old friends. We tried to furnish and equip our new home. The three-story place had come empty, so we had to get everything, or everything that our parents hadn't generously handed down to us. This felt very mature, but was at the same time very telling about our priorities. We bought dishes, cutlery, a desk, and a chair, but we still slept on a mattress on the floor. I'd become allergic to credit cards with all their tracking, so we bought everything outright with hard currency. When we needed a car, I bought a 98 Acura Integra from a classified ad for $3,000 cash. Earning money was one thing, but neither Lindsay nor I liked to spend it, unless it was for computer equipment or a special occasion. For Valentine's Day, I bought Lindsay the revolver she'd always wanted. Our new condo was a 20-minute drive from nearly a dozen malls, including the Columbia Mall, which has nearly 1.5 million square feet of shopping, occupied by some 200 stores, a 14-screen AMC multiplex, a P.F. Chang's, and a cheesecake factory. As we drove the familiar roads in the beat-up Integra, I was impressed, but also slightly taken aback, by all the development that had occurred in my absence. The post-9-11 government spending spree had certainly put a lot of money into a lot of local pockets. It was an unsettling and even overwhelming experience to come back to America after having been away for a while and to realize anew just how wealthy this part of the country was and how many consumer options it offered, how many big-box retailers and high-end interior design showrooms, and all of them had sales, for President's Day, Memorial Day, Independence Day, Labor Day, Columbus Day, Veterans Day, festive banners announced the latest discounts just below all the flags. Our mission was pretty much appliance-based on this one afternoon I'm recalling. We were at Best Buy. Having settled on a new microwave, we were checking out, on Lindsay's healthful insistence, a display of blenders. She had her phone out and was in the midst of researching which of the ten or so devices had the best reviews, when I found myself wandering over to the computer department at the far end of the store. But along the way, I stopped. There, at the edge of the kitchenware section, ensconced atop a brightly decorated and lit elevated platform, was a shiny new refrigerator. Rather, it was a smart fridge, which was being advertised as internet-equipped. This, plain and simple, blew my mind. A salesperson approached, interpreting my stupefaction as interest. It was amazing, isn't it? And proceeded to demonstrate a few of the features. A screen was embedded in the door of the fridge, and next to the screen was a holder for a tiny stylus, which allowed you to scribble messages. If you didn't want to scribble, you could record audio and video memos. You could also use the screen as you would your regular computer, because the refrigerator had Wi-Fi. 
You could check your email or check your calendar. You could watch YouTube clips or listen to MP3s. You could even make phone calls. I had to restrain myself from keying in Lindsay's number and saying from across the floor, I'm calling from a fridge. Beyond that, the salesperson continued, the fridge's computer kept track of internal temperature and, through scanning barcodes, the freshness of your food. It also provided nutritional information and suggested recipes. I think the price was over $9,000, delivery included, the salesperson said. I remember driving home in a confused silence. This wasn't quite the stunning moonshot tech future we'd been promised. I was convinced that the only reason that thing was internet-equipped was so that it could report back to its manufacturer about its owner's usage and about any other household data that was obtainable. The manufacturer, in turn, would monetize that data by selling it. And we were supposed to pay for the privilege. I wondered what the point was of getting so worked up over government surveillance if my friends, neighbors, and fellow citizens were more than happy to invite corporate surveillance into their homes, allowing themselves to be tracked while browsing in their pantries as efficiently as if they were browsing the web. It would still be another half-decade before the domotics revolution, before virtual assistants like Amazon Echo and Google Home were welcomed into the bedroom and placed proudly on nightstands to record and transmit all activity within range, to log all habits and preferences, not to mention fetishes and kinks, which would then be developed into advertising algorithms and converted into cash. The data we generate just by living, or just by letting ourselves be surveilled while living, would enrich private enterprise and impoverish our private existence in equal measure. If government surveillance was having the effect of turning the citizen into a subject at the mercy of state power, then corporate surveillance was turning the consumer into a product, which corporations sold to other corporations, data brokers, and advertisers. Meanwhile, it felt as if every major tech company, including Dell, was rolling out new civilian versions of what I was working on for the CIA, a cloud. In fact, Dell had even tried four years previously to trademark the term cloud computing, but was denied. I was amazed at how willingly people were signing up, so excited at the prospect of their photos and videos and music and ebooks being universally backed up and available that they never gave much thought as to why such an uber-sophisticated and convenient storage solution was being offered to them for free or for cheap in the first place. I don't think I'd ever seen such a concept be so uniformly bought into on every side. The cloud was as effective a sales term for Dell to sell to the CIA as it was for Amazon and Apple and Google to sell to their users. I can still close my eyes and hear Cliff schmoozing some CIA suit about how, with the cloud, you'll be able to push security updates across agency computers worldwide. Or, when the cloud's up and running, the agency will be able to track who has read what file worldwide. The cloud was white and fluffy and peaceful, floating high above the fray. Though many clouds make a stormy sky, a single cloud provided a benevolent bit of shade. It was protective. I think it made everyone think of heaven. Dell, along with the largest cloud-based private companies, Amazon, Apple, and Google, regarded the rest of the cloud as a new age of computing. But in concept, at least, it was something of a regression to the old mainframe architecture of computing's earliest history, where many users all depended upon a single, powerful, central core that could only be maintained by an elite cadre of professionals. The world had abandoned this impersonal mainframe model only a generation before, once businesses like Dell developed personal computers, cheap enough and simple enough to appeal to mortals. The renaissance that followed produced desktops, laptops, tablets, and smartphones, all devices that allowed people the freedom to make an immense amount of creative work. The only issue was how to store it. That was the genesis of cloud computing. 
Now it didn't really matter what kind of personal computer you had, because the real computers that you relied upon were warehoused in the enormous data centers that the cloud companies built throughout the world. These were, in a sense, the new mainframes. Row after row of racked, identical servers linked together in such a way that each individual machine acted together within a collective computing system. The loss of a single server or even an entire data center no longer mattered because they were mere droplets in the larger global cloud. From the standpoint of a regular user, a cloud is just a storage mechanism that ensures that your data is being processed or stored not on your personal device, but on a range of different servers, which can ultimately be owned and operated by different companies. The result is that your data is no longer truly yours. It's controlled by companies, which can use it for virtually any purpose. Read your terms of service agreements for cloud storage, which get longer and longer by the year. Current ones are over 6,000 words, twice the average length of one of these book chapters. When we choose to store our data online, we're often ceding our claim to it. Companies can decide what type of data they will hold for us and can willfully delete any data they object to. Unless we've kept a separate copy on our own machines or drives, this data will be lost to us forever. If any of our data is found to be particularly objectionable or otherwise in violation of the terms of service, the companies can unilaterally delete our accounts, deny us our own data, and yet retain a copy for their own records, which they can turn over to the authorities without our knowledge or consent. Ultimately, the privacy of our data depends on the ownership of our data. There is no property less protected, and yet no property more private. The Internet I'd grown up with, the Internet that had raised me, was disappearing. And with it, so was my youth. The very act of going online, which had once seemed like a marvelous adventure, now seemed like a fraught ordeal. Self-expression now required such strong self-protection as to obviate its liberties and nullify its pleasures. Every communication was a matter not of creativity, but of safety. Every transaction was a potential danger. Meanwhile, the private sector was busy leveraging our reliance on technology into market consolidation. The majority of American Internet users lived their entire digital lives on email, social media, and e-commerce platforms owned by an imperial triumvirate of companies, Google, Facebook, and Amazon and the American IC was seeking to take advantage of that fact by obtaining access to their networks, both through direct orders that were kept secret from the public and clandestine subversion efforts that were kept secret from the companies themselves. Our user data was turning vast profits for the companies, and the government pilfered it for free. I don't think I'd ever felt so powerless. Then there was this other emotion I felt, a Curious sense of being adrift and yet at the same time of having my privacy violated. It was as if I were dispersed with parts of my life scattered across servers all over the globe and yet intruded or imposed upon. Every morning when I left our townhouse, I found myself nodding at the security cameras dotted throughout our development. Previously, I'd never paid them any attention. But now, when a light turned red on my commute, I couldn't help but think of its leering sensor, keeping tabs on me whether I blew through the intersection or stopped. License plate readers were recording my comings and goings, even if I maintained a speed of 35 miles per hour. America's fundamental laws exist to make the job of law enforcement not easier, but harder. This isn't a bug. It's a core feature of democracy. In the American system, law enforcement is expected to protect citizens from one another. In turn, the courts are expected to restrain that power when it's abused and to provide redress against the only members of society with the domestic authority to detain, arrest, and use force, including lethal force. Among the most important of those restraints are the prohibitions against law enforcement surveilling private citizens on their property and taking possession of their private recordings without a warrant. There are few laws, however, 
that restrain the surveillance of public property, which includes the vast majority of America's streets and sidewalks. Law enforcement's use of surveillance cameras on public property was originally conceived of as a crime deterrent and an aid to investigators after a crime had occurred. But as the cost of these devices continued to fall, they became ubiquitous, and their role became preemptive, with law enforcement using them to track people who had not committed or were not even suspected of any crime. And the greatest danger still lies ahead with the refinement of artificial intelligence capabilities such as facial and pattern recognition. An AI-equipped surveillance camera would be no mere recording device, but could be made into something closer to an automated police officer, a true robocop, actively seeking out suspicious activity, such as apparent drug deals, that is, people embracing or shaking hands, and apparent gang affiliation, such as people wearing specific colors and brands of clothing. Even in 2011, it was clear to me that this was where technology was leading us, without any substantive public debate. Potential monitoring abuses piled up in my mind to cumulatively produce a vision of an appalling future. A world in which all people were totally surveilled would logically become a world in which all laws were totally enforced, automatically by computers. After all, It's difficult to imagine an AI device that's capable of noticing a person breaking the law not holding that person accountable. No policing algorithm would ever be programmed, even if it could be, toward leniency or forgiveness. I wondered whether this would be the final but grotesque fulfillment of the original American promise that all citizens would be equal before the law, an equality of oppression through total automated law enforcement. I imagined the future smart fridge stationed in my kitchen, monitoring my conduct and habits, and using my tendency to drink straight from the carton or not wash my hands to evaluate the probability of my being a felon. Such a world of total automated law enforcement of, say, all pet ownership laws or all zoning laws regulating home businesses would be intolerable. Extreme justice can turn out to be extreme injustice, not just in terms of the severity of punishment for an infraction, but also in terms of how consistently and thoroughly the law is applied and prosecuted. Nearly every large and long-lived society is full of unwritten laws that everyone is expected to follow, along with vast libraries of written laws that no one is expected to follow or even know about. According to Maryland Criminal Law Section 10-501, Adultery is illegal and punishable by a $10 fine. In North Carolina, Statute 14-309.8 makes it illegal for a bingo game to last more than five hours. Both of these laws come from a more prudish past, and yet, for one reason or another, were never repealed. Most of our lives, even if we don't realize it, occur not in black and white, but in a gray area where we jaywalk, put trash in the recycling bin and recyclables in the trash, ride our bicycles in the improper lane, and borrow a stranger's Wi-Fi to download a book that we didn't pay for. Put simply, a world in which every law is always enforced would be a world in which everyone was a criminal. I tried to talk to Lindsay about all this, but though she was generally sympathetic to my concerns, she wasn't so sympathetic that she was ready to go off the grid, or even off Facebook or Instagram. If I did that, she said, I'd be giving up my art and abandoning my friends. You used to like being in touch with other people. She was right. And she was right to be worried about me. She thought I was too tense and under too much stress. I was, not because of my work, but because of my desire to tell her a truth that I wasn't allowed to. I couldn't tell her that my former co-workers at the NSA could target her for surveillance and read the love poems she texted me. I couldn't tell her that they could access all the photos she took, not just her public photos, but the intimate ones. I couldn't tell her that her information was being collected, that everyone's information was being collected, which was tantamount to a government threat. If you ever get out of line, we'll use your private life against you. I tried to explain it to her obliquely through an analogy. I told her to imagine opening up her laptop one day 
and finding a spreadsheet on her desktop. Why, she said, I don't like spreadsheets. I wasn't prepared for this response, so I just said the first thing that came to mind. Nobody does, but this one's called The End. Ooh, mysterious. You don't remember having created this spreadsheet, but once you open it up, you recognize its contents, because inside it is everything, absolutely everything, that could ruin you. Every speck of information that could destroy your life. Lindsay smiled. Can I see the one for you? She was joking, but I wasn't. A spreadsheet containing every scrap of data about you would pose a mortal hazard. Imagine it. All the secrets, big and small, that could end your marriage, end your career, poison even your closest relationships, and leave you broke, friendless, and in prison. Maybe the spreadsheet would include the joint you smoked last weekend at a friend's house, or the one line of cocaine you snorted off the screen of your phone in a bar in college, or the drunken one-night stand you had with your friend's girlfriend, who's now your friend's wife, which you both regret and have agreed never to mention to anyone. Or an abortion you got when you were a teenager, which you kept hidden from your parents and that you'd like to keep hidden from your spouse. Or maybe it's just information about a petition you signed or a protest you attended. Everyone has something, some compromising information buried among their bites. If not in their files, then in their email. If not in their email, then in their browsing history. And now this information was being stored by the U.S. government. Sometime after our exchange, Lindsay came up to me and said, I figured out what would be on my spreadsheet of total destruction, the secret that would ruin me. What? I'm not going to tell you. I tried to chill, but I kept having strange physical symptoms. I'd become weirdly clumsy, falling off ladders more than once or bumping into door frames. Sometimes I'd trip or drop spoons I was holding or fail to gauge distances accurately and miss what I was reaching for. I'd spill water over myself or choke on it. Lindsay and I would be in the middle of a conversation when I'd miss what she'd said and she'd ask where I'd gone to. It was like I'd been frozen in another world. One day when I went to meet Lindsay after her pole fitness class, I started feeling dizzy. This was one of the most disturbing of the symptoms that I'd had thus far. It scared me, and it scared Lindsay, too, especially when it led to a gradual diminishing of my senses. I had too many explanations for these incidents, poor diet, lack of exercise, lack of sleep. I had too many rationalizations. The plate was too close to the edge of the counter. The stairs were slippery. I couldn't make up my mind whether it was worse if what I was experiencing was psychosomatic or genuine. I decided to go to the doctor, but the only appointment wasn't for weeks. A day or so later, I was home around noon, trying my best to keep up with work remotely. I was on the phone with a security officer, Adele, when the dizziness hit me hard. I immediately excused myself from the call, slurring my words, and as I struggled to hang up the phone, I was sure I was going to die. For those who've experienced it, this sense of impending doom needs no description. And for those who haven't, there is no explanation. It strikes so suddenly and primally that it wipes out all other feeling, all thought, besides helpless resignation. My life was over. I slumped in my chair, a big black padded aeron that tilted underneath me as I fell into a void and lost consciousness. I came to, still seated, with the clock on my desk reading just shy of 1 p.m. I'd been out less than an hour, but I was exhausted. It was as if I'd been awake since the beginning of time. I reached for the phone in a panic, but my hand kept missing it and grabbing the air. Once I managed to grab a hold of it and get a dial tone, I found I couldn't remember Lindsay's number, or could only remember the digits, but not their order. Somehow I managed to get myself downstairs, taking each step deliberately, palm against the wall, I got some juice out of the fridge and chugged it, keeping both hands on the carton and dribbling a fair amount on my chin. Then I lay down on the floor, pressed my cheek to the cool linoleum, and fell asleep, which was how Lindsay found me. I'd just had an epileptic seizure.
My mother had epilepsy, and for a time, at least, was prone to grand mal seizures, the foaming at the mouth, her limbs thrashing, her body rolling around until it stilled into a horrible, unconscious rigidity. I couldn't believe I hadn't previously associated my symptoms with hers, though that was the very same denial she herself had been in for decades, attributing her frequent falls to clumsiness and lack of coordination. She hadn't been diagnosed until her first grand mal in her late 30s, and after a brief spell on medication, her seizures stopped. She'd always told me and my sister that epilepsy wasn't hereditary, and to this day I'm still not sure if that's what her doctor had told her, or if she was just trying to reassure us that her fate wouldn't be ours. There is no diagnostic test for epilepsy. The clinical diagnosis is just two or more unexplained seizures. That's it. Very little is known about the condition. Medicine tends to treat epilepsy phenomenologically. Doctors don't talk about epilepsy, they talk about seizures. They tend to divide seizures into two types, localized and generalized. The former being an electrical misfire in a certain section of your brain that doesn't spread. The latter being an electrical misfire that creates a chain reaction. Basically, a wave of misfiring synapses rolls across your brain, causing you to lose motor function and ultimately consciousness. Epilepsy is such a strange syndrome. Its sufferers feel different things, depending on which part of the brain has the initial electrical cascade failure. Those who have this failure in their auditory center famously hear bells. Those who have it in their visual center either have their vision go dark or see sparkles. If the failure happens in the deeper core areas of the brain, which was where mine occurred, it can cause severe vertigo. In time, I came to know the warning signs, so I could prepare for an oncoming seizure. These signs are called auras in the popular language of epilepsy, though in scientific fact, these auras are the seizure itself. They are the proprioceptive experience of the misfire. I consulted with as many epilepsy specialists as I could find. The best part of working for Dell was the insurance. I had CAT scans, MRIs, the works. Meanwhile, Lindsay, who was my stalwart angel throughout all this, driving me back and forth from appointments, went about researching all the information that was available about the syndrome. She googled both allopathic and homeopathic treatments so intensely that basically all her Gmail ads were for epilepsy pharmaceuticals. I felt defeated. The two great institutions of my life had been betrayed and were betraying me, my country, and the Internet. And now my body was following suit. My brain had quite literally short-circuited. Chapter 18. On the Couch. It was late at night on May 1st, 2011, when I noticed the news alert on my phone. Osama bin Laden had been tracked down to Abbottabad, Pakistan, and killed by a team of Navy SEALs. So there it was. The man who'd masterminded the attacks that had propelled me into the Army, and from there into the intelligence community, was now dead. A dialysis patient shot point-blank in the embrace of his multiple wives in their lavish compound just down the road from Pakistan's major military academy. Sight after sight showed maps indicating where the hell Abbottabad was, alternating with street scenes from cities throughout America, where people were fist-pumping, chest-bumping, yelling, getting wasted. Even New York was celebrating, which almost never happens. I turned off the phone. I just didn't have it in me to join in. Don't get me wrong. I was glad the motherfucker was dead. I was just having a pensive moment and felt a circle closing. Ten years. That's how long it had been since those two planes flew into the Twin Towers. And what did we have to show for it? What had the last decade actually accomplished? I sat on the couch inherited from my mother's condo and gazed through the window into the street beyond as a neighbor honked the horn of his parked car. I couldn't shake the idea that I'd wasted the last decade of my life. The previous ten years had been a cavalcade of American-made tragedy, the forever war in Afghanistan, 
catastrophic regime change in Iraq, indefinite detentions at Guantanamo Bay, extraordinary renditions, torture, targeted killings of civilians, even of American civilians via drone strikes. Domestically, there was the homeland securitization of everything, which assigned a threat rating to every waking day. Red, severe. Orange, high. Yellow, elevated. And, from the Patriot Act on, the steady erosion of civil liberties, the very liberties we were allegedly fighting to protect. The cumulative damage, the malfeasance in aggregate, was staggering to contemplate and felt entirely irreversible. And yet we were still honking our horns and flashing our lights in jubilation. The biggest terrorist attack on American soil happened concurrently with the development of digital technology, which made much of the earth American soil, whether we liked it or not. Terrorism, of course, was the stated reason why most of my country's surveillance programs were implemented, at a time of great fear and opportunism. But it turned out that fear was the true terrorism, perpetuated by a political system that was increasingly willing to use practically any justification to authorize the use of force. American politicians weren't as afraid of terror as they were of seeming weak, or of being disloyal to their party, or of being disloyal to their campaign donors who had ample appetites for government contracts and petroleum products from the Middle East. The politics of terror became more powerful than the terror itself, resulting in counter-terror, the panicked actions of a country unmatched in capability, unrestrained by policy, and blatantly unconcerned about upholding the rule of law. After 9-11, the IC's orders had been never again. A mission that could never be accomplished. A decade later, it had become clear, to me at least, that the repeated evocations of terror by the political class were not a response to any specific threat or concern, but a cynical attempt to turn terror into a permanent danger that required permanent vigilance enforced by unquestionable authority. After a decade of mass surveillance, the technology had proved itself to be a potent weapon less against terror and more against liberty itself. By continuing these programs, by continuing these lies, America was protecting little, winning nothing, and losing much, until there would be few distinctions left between those post-9-11 polarities of us and them. The latter half of 2011 passed in a succession of seizures and in countless doctors' offices and hospitals. I was imaged, tested, and prescribed medications that stabilized my body but clouded my mind, turning me depressed, lethargic, and unable to focus. I wasn't sure how I was going to live with what Lindsay was now calling my condition, without losing my job. Being the top technologist for Dell's CIA account meant I had tremendous flexibility. My office was my phone, and I could work from home. But meetings were an issue. They were always in Virginia, and I lived in Maryland, a state whose law prevented people diagnosed with epilepsy from driving. If I were caught behind the wheel, I could lose my driver's license, and with it my ability to attend the meetings that were the single non-negotiable requirement of my position. I finally gave in to the inevitable, took a short-term disability leave from Dell, and decamped to my mother's second-hand couch. It was as blue as my mood, but comfortable. For weeks and weeks, it was the center of my existence, the place where I slept and ate and read and slept some more, the place where I just generally wallowed bleakly as time mocked me. I don't remember what books I tried to read, but I do remember never managing much more than a page before closing my eyes and sinking back again into the cushions. I couldn't concentrate on anything except my own weakness, the uncooperative lump that used to be me spread across the upholstery, motionless but for a lone finger atop the screen of the phone that was the only light in the room. I'd scroll through the news, then nap, then scroll again, then nap, while protesters in Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Yemen, Algeria, Morocco, Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria 
were being imprisoned and tortured or just shot in the streets by the secret state agents of thuggish regimes, many of which America had helped keep in power. The suffering of that season was immense, spiraling out of the regular news cycle. What I was witnessing was desperation, compared with which my own struggles seemed cheap. They seemed small, morally and ethically small, and privileged. Throughout the Middle East, innocent civilians were living under the constant threat of violence, with work and school suspended, no electricity, no sewage. In many regions, they didn't have access to even the most rudimentary medical care. But if at any moment I doubted that my anxieties about surveillance and privacy were relevant or even appropriate in the face of such immediate danger and privation, I only had to pay a bit more attention to the crowds on the street and the proclamations they were making in Cairo and Sana'a, in Beirut and Damascus, in Avaz, Kujistan, and in every other city of the Arab Spring and Iranian Green movement. The crowds were calling for an end to oppression, censorship, and precarity. They were declaring that in a truly just society, the people were not answerable to the government, the government was answerable to the people. Although each crowd, in each city, even on each day, seemed to have its own specific motivation and its own specific goals, they all had one thing in common. A rejection of authoritarianism, a recommitment to the humanitarian principle that an individual's rights are inborn and inalienable. In an authoritarian state, rights derive from the state and are granted to the people. In a free state, rights derive from the people and are granted to the state. In the former, people are subjects, who are only allowed to own property, pursue an education, work, pray, and speak because their government permits them to. In the latter, people are citizens, who agree to be governed in a covenant of consent that must be periodically renewed and is constitutionally revocable. It's this clash between the authoritarian and the liberal democratic that I believe to be the major ideological conflict of my time. Not some concocted, prejudiced notion of an East-West divide or of a resurrected crusade against Christendom or Islam. Authoritarian states are typically not governments of laws, but governments of leaders who demand loyalty from their subjects and are hostile to dissent. Liberal democratic states, by contrast, make no or few such demands, but depend almost solely on each citizen voluntarily assuming the responsibility of protecting the freedoms of everyone else around them, regardless of their race, ethnicity, creed, ability, sexuality, or gender. Any collective guarantee, predicated not on blood but on assent, will wind up favoring egalitarianism. And though democracy has often fallen far short of its ideal, I still believe it to be the one form of governance that most fully enables people of different backgrounds to live together, equal before the law. This equality consists not only of rights, but also of freedoms. In fact, many of the rights most cherished by citizens of democracies aren't even provided for in law except by implication. They exist in that open-ended, empty space created through the restriction of government power. For example, Americans only have a right to free speech because the government is forbidden from making any law restricting that freedom, and a right to a free press because the government is forbidden from making any law to abridge it. They only have a right to worship freely because the government is forbidden from making any law respecting an establishment of religion, and a right to peaceably assemble and protest because the government is forbidden from making any law that says they can't. In a contemporary life, we have a single concept that encompasses all this negative or potential space that's off-limits to the government. That concept is privacy. It's an empty zone that lies beyond the reach of the state, a void into which the law is only permitted to venture with a warrant, and not a warrant for everybody, such as the one the U.S. government has arrogated to itself in pursuit of mass surveillance, but a warrant for a specific person or purpose supported by a specific probable cause. 
The word privacy itself is somewhat empty because it is essentially indefinable or overdefinable. Each of us has our own idea of what it is. Privacy means something to everyone. There is no one to whom it means nothing. It's because of this lack of common definition that citizens of pluralistic, technologically sophisticated democracies feel that they have to justify their desire for privacy and frame it as a right. But citizens of democracies don't have to justify that desire. The state, instead, must justify its violation. To refuse to claim your privacy is actually to cede it, either to a state trespassing its constitutional restraints or to a private business. There is simply no way to ignore privacy. Because a citizenry's freedoms are interdependent, to surrender your own privacy is really to surrender everyone's. You might choose to give it up out of convenience or under the popular pretext that privacy is only required by those who have something to hide. But saying that you don't need or want privacy because you have nothing to hide is to assume that no one should have or could have to hide anything, including their immigration status, unemployment history, financial history, and health records. You're assuming that no one, including yourself, might object to revealing to anyone information about their religious beliefs, political affiliations, and sexual activities, as casually as some choose to reveal their movie and music tastes and reading preferences. Ultimately, saying that you don't care about privacy because you have nothing to hide is no different from saying you don't care about freedom of speech because you have nothing to say, or that you don't care about freedom of the press because you don't like to read, or that you don't care about freedom of religion because you don't believe in God or that you don't care about the freedom to peaceably assemble because you're a lazy, antisocial agoraphobe. Just because this or that freedom might not have meaning to you today doesn't mean that it doesn't or won't have meaning tomorrow to you or to your neighbor or to the crowds of principal dissidents I was following on my phone who were protesting halfway across the planet, hoping to gain just a fraction of the freedoms that my country was busily dismantling. I wanted to help but I didn't know how. I'd had enough of feeling helpless, of being just an asshole in flannel lying around on a shabby couch eating Cool Ranch Doritos and drinking Diet Coke while the world went up in flames. The young people of the Middle East were agitating for higher wages, lower prices, and better pensions. But I couldn't give them any of that, and no one could give them a better shot at self-governance than the one they were taking themselves. They were, however, also agitating for a freer internet. They were decrying Iran's Ayatollah Khamenei, who had been increasingly censoring and blocking threatening web content, tracking and hacking traffic to offending platforms and servers, and shutting down certain foreign ISPs entirely. They were protesting Egypt's president, Hosni Mubarak, who'd cut off internet access for his whole country, which had merely succeeded in making every young person in the country even more furious and bored, luring them out into the streets. Ever since I'd been introduced to the Tor project in Geneva, I'd used its browser and run my own Tor server, wanting to do my professional work from home and my personal web browsing unmonitored. Now, I shook off my despair, propelled myself off the couch, and staggered over to my home office to set up a bridge relay that would bypass the Iranian internet blockades. I then distributed its encrypted configuration identity to the Tor core developers. That was the least I could do. If there was just the slightest chance that even one young kid from Iran who hadn't been able to get online could now bypass the imposed filters and restrictions and connect to me, connect through me, protected by the Tor system and my server's anonymity, then it was certainly worth my minimal effort. I imagined this person reading their email or checking their social media accounts to make sure that their friends and family had not been arrested. I had no way of knowing whether this was what they did or whether anyone at all linked to my server from Iran. And that was the point. The aid I offered was private. The guy who started the Arab Spring was almost exactly my age. He was a produce peddler in Tunisia, selling fruits and vegetables out of a cart. 
in protest against repeated harassment and extortion by the authorities, he stood in the square and set fire to his life, dying a martyr. If burning himself to death was the last free act he could manage in defiance of an illegitimate regime, I could certainly get up off the couch and press a few buttons. Part 3 Chapter 19 The Tunnel Imagine you're entering a tunnel. Imagine the perspective. As you look down the length that stretches ahead of you, notice how the walls seem to narrow to the tiny dot of light at the other end. The light at the end of the tunnel is a symbol of hope, and it's also what people say they see in near-death experiences. They have to go to it, they say. They're drawn to it. But then, where else is there to go in a tunnel except through it? Hasn't everything led up to that point? My tunnel was the tunnel, an enormous Pearl Harbor-era airplane factory turned NSA facility located under a pineapple field in Cunia on the island of Oahu, Hawaii. The facility was built out of reinforced concrete, its eponymous tunnel a kilometer-long tube in the side of a hill opening up into three cavernous floors of server vaults and offices. At the time the tunnel was built, the hill was covered over with huge amounts of sand, soil, desiccated pineapple plant leaves, and patches of sun-parched grass to camouflage it from Japanese bombers. Sixty years later, it resembled the vast burial mound of a lost civilization, or some gigantic, arid pile that a weird god had heaped up in the middle of a god-sized sandbox. Its official name was the Cunia Regional Security Operations Center. I went to work there, still on a Dell contract, but now for the NSA again, in early 2012. One day that summer, actually it was my birthday, as I passed through the security checks and proceeded down the tunnel, it struck me. This, in front of me, was my future. I'm not saying that I made any decisions at that instant. The most important decisions in life are never made that way. They're made subconsciously and only express themselves consciously once fully formed. Once you're finally strong enough to admit to yourself that this is what your conscience has already chosen for you. This is the course that your beliefs have decreed. That was my 29th birthday present to myself. The awareness that I had entered a tunnel that would narrow my life down toward a single, still indistinct act. Just as Hawaii had always been an important way station, Historically, the U.S. military treated the island chain as little more than a mid-Pacific refueling depot for boats and planes. It had also become an important switchpoint for American communications. These include the intelligence that flowed between the contiguous 48 states and my former place of employment, Japan, as well as other sites in Asia. The job I'd taken was a significant step down the career ladder with duties I could at this point perform in my sleep. It was supposed to mean less stress, a lighter burden. I was the sole employee of the aptly named Office of Information Sharing, where I worked as a SharePoint systems administrator. SharePoint is a Microsoft product, a dopey, pokey program, or rather a grab bag of programs, focused on internal document management, who can read what, who can edit what, who can send and receive what, and so on. By making me Hawaii's SharePoint systems administrator, the NSA had made me the manager of document management. I was, in effect, the reader-in-chief at one of the agency's most significant facilities. As was my typical practice in any new technical position, I spent the earliest days automating my tasks, meaning writing scripts to do my work for me, so as to free up my time for something more interesting. Before I go any further, I want to emphasize this. My active searching out of NSA abuses began not with the copying of documents, but with the reading of them. My initial intention was just to confirm the suspicions that I'd first had back in 2009 in Tokyo. Three years later, I was determined to find out if an American system of mass surveillance existed, and if it did, how it functioned. 
Though I was uncertain about how to conduct this investigation, I was at least sure of this. I had to understand exactly how the system worked before I could decide what, if anything, to do about it. This, of course, was not why Lindsay and I had come to Hawaii. We hadn't hauled all the way out to paradise just so I could throw our lives away for a principle. We'd come to start over, to start over yet again. My doctors told me that the climate and more relaxed lifestyle in Hawaii might be beneficial for my epilepsy, since lack of sleep was thought to be the leading trigger of the seizures. Also, the move eliminated the driving problem. The tunnel was within bicycling distance of a number of communities in Cunia, the quiet heart of the island's dry, red interior. It was a pleasant 20-minute ride to work through sugarcane fields in brilliant sunshine. With the mountains rising calm and high in the clear blue distance, the gloomy mood of the last few months lifted like the morning fog. Lindsay and I found a decent-sized bungalow-type house on Ilu Street in Waipahu's Royal Cunia, which we furnished with our stuff from Columbia, Maryland, since Dell paid relocation expenses. The furniture didn't get much use, though, since the sun and heat would often cause us to walk in the door, strip off our clothes, and lie naked on the carpet beneath the overworked air conditioner. Eventually, Lindsay turned the garage into a fitness studio, filling it with yoga mats and the spinning pole she'd brought from Columbia. I set up a new tour server. Soon, traffic from around the world was reaching the internet via the laptop sitting in our entertainment center, which had the ancillary benefit of hiding my own internet activity in the noise. One night during the summer I turned 29, Lindsay finally prevailed on me to go out with her to a luau. She'd been after me to go for a while because a few of her pole fitness friends had been involved in some hula girl capacity, but I'd been resistant. It had seemed like such a cheesy, touristy thing to do and had felt somehow disrespectful. Hawaiian culture is ancient, although its traditions are very much alive. The last thing I wanted was to disturb someone's sacred ritual. Finally, however, I capitulated. I'm very glad I did. What impressed me the most was not the luau itself, though it was very much a fire-twirling spectacle, but the old man who was holding court nearby in a little amphitheater down by the sea. He was a native Hawaiian, an erudite man with that soft but nasal island voice who was telling a group of people gathered around a fire the creation stories of the island's indigenous peoples. The one story that stuck with me concerned the twelve sacred islands of the gods. Apparently, there had existed a dozen islands in the Pacific that were so beautiful and pure and blessed with fresh water that they had to be kept secret from humanity, who would spoil them. Three of them were especially revered, Kane Hunamoku, Kahiki, and Pauliuli. The lucky gods who inhabited these islands decided to keep them hidden because they believed that a glimpse of their bounty would drive people mad. After considering numerous ingenious schemes by which these islands might be concealed, including dyeing them the color of the sea or sinking them to the bottom of the ocean, they finally decided to make them float in the air. Once the islands were airborne, they were blown from place to place, staying constantly in motion. At sunrise and sunset especially, you might think that you'd noticed one, hovering far at the horizon. But the moment you pointed it out to anyone, it would suddenly drift away or assume another form entirely, such as a pumice raft, a hunk of rock ejected by a volcanic eruption, or a cloud. I thought about that legend a lot while I went about my search. The revelations I was pursuing were exactly like those islands, exotic preserves that a pantheon of self-important, self-appointed rulers were convinced had to be kept secret and hidden from humanity. I wanted to know what the NSA's surveillance capabilities were exactly, whether and how they extended beyond the agency's actual surveillance activities, who approved them, who knew about them, and, last but surely not least, how these systems, both technical and institutional, really operated. The moment I'd think that I spotted one of these islands, 
Some capitalized code name I didn't understand. Some program referenced in a note buried at the end of a report. I'd go chasing after further mention of it in other documents, but find none. It was as if the program I was searching for had floated away from me and was lost. Then, days later or weeks later, it might surface again under a different designation, in a document from a different department. Sometimes I'd find a program with a recognizable name, but without an explanation of what it did. Other times, I'd just find a nameless explanation, with no indication as to whether the capability it described was an active program or an aspirational desire. I was running up against compartments within compartments, caveats within caveats, suites within suites, programs within programs. This was the nature of the NSA. By design, the left hand rarely knew what the right hand was doing. In a way, what I was doing reminded me of a documentary I once watched about map making, specifically about the way that nautical charts were created in the days before imaging and GPS. Ship captains would keep logs and note their coordinates, which landbound map makers would then try to interpret. It was through the gradual accretion of this data over hundreds of years that the full extent of the Pacific became known and all its islands identified. But I didn't have hundreds of years or hundreds of ships. I was alone, one man hunched over a blank blue ocean trying to find where this one speck of dry land, this one data point, belonged in relation to all the others.